Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and throw the business into turmoil. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So according to Stanford University's Law School's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act Clearinghouse, between 2001 and 2019, there were 268 FCPA enforcement actions, of which 246, or 91.7% of bribes, were paid by third parties as opposed to officers or employees of the defending company. Sales agents, distributors, JV partners, resellers, freight forwarders, customs brokers, lawyers, and accountants are all categories of third-party intermediary that have been implicated in bribery prosecutions. Rarely, though, do we hear or read about the names of third-party bribe payers or the names of their companies. Global companies, particularly those who ship products internationally, or rely on third parties in other ways to bring their products and services to market, are heavily reliant on virtual armies of third-party intermediaries to operate internationally. They are a necessary evil that can act on an organization's behalf, represent them in the marketplace, and potentially trigger significant liability under the FCPA, sanctions, or anti-money laundering laws. I'm joined today by Foley & Lardner litigation partner and FCPA expert, David Simon. David leads Foley's Government Enforcement, Defense, and Investigations International Practice, representing clients particularly in the areas of FCPA, government enforcement, and the conduct of internal investigations to preempt or mitigate actions taken by the Department of Justice, SEC, and other enforcement agencies. His practice focuses on conducting domestic and international internal investigations, successfully defending companies and senior executives in enforcement actions and litigation with the government, and delivering practical regulatory advice and building compliance programs to help avoid enforcement actions in the first place. David is experienced in guiding corporate boards and company management through challenging government enforcement matters and understands that compliance problems are fundamentally business problems that require business-centric solutions. Well, welcome, David, and, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, it's really nice to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. And let me uh, commend you on your pioneering this method of sharing information in our practice. We tend to be dinosaurs in this world, and, and you're out there on the frontier. I think I actually think your next move needs to be TikTok. So, so keep that in, keep that as your your, your next. Your I, next I am move. I am working on choreographing my dancing as we speak, David. So thank you, though. So the, the FCPA is an idiosyncratic law. It's slanted heavily toward punishing bribe-paying companies and not bribe recipients, which seems inherently unfair. In addition, although the overwhelming majority of bribes are paid by intermediaries, their identities are seldom disclosed, and they frequently are not charged in the prosecution of the company on whose behalf the bribes are paid. So why is it that third-party bribe payers are often not named publicly? So this is founded, I think, in sound public policy. DOJ particularly has always avoided in its sort of -of run-of-the-mill criminal enforcement paradigm naming persons that aren't charged in crimes, thus the sort of the famous unindicted co-conspirator concept. You know, the policy is rooted in due process, right? Implicating people in criminal misconduct causes harm to them. It's potentially defamatory. And so they want to be careful. And it's good that they're careful that they take this position. They actually ultimately have a policy, an explicit policy, that 
prohibits naming uncharged individuals or persons without a significant justification as a standard. And the SEC's followed along with that. So my view is that it's not an unfounded position that they take. I just think maybe there's room for an exception here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are really important points that you make. Of course, transparency is becoming much more important in a lot of areas of compliance. And you've recently advocated the position that naming of these bribe-paying intermediaries, if they haven't been charged, would you know potentially improve FCPA compliance. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this would be a, a really positive way to promote the goals of the whole FCPA enforcement program. So my Foley colleagues and I have argued that going back to the DOJ policy requiring a significant justification that naming bribe-paying intermediaries here in the FCPA context is in fact a significant justification. And here's the thinking, right? I mean, as you noted at the outset, third-party intermediaries are by far, by far, by far, by far the highest risk within the FCPA compliance world. So We know that this is where the action is. This is where companies go wrong. This is where problems arise. So it's super important that we give companies the tools to do it right. Second point, both the SEC and DOJ have exceptionally high expectations of companies from a compliance perspective. I mean, they expect companies to know if they're hiring intermediaries with a propensity to bribe. DOJ will charge companies, individuals criminally for being willfully blind to such propensity. So We know this is a risk. We know the regulators are demanding a lot from companies in terms of compliance. Third point, when SEC and DOJ are bringing these cases and bringing charges and resolving cases, they have substantial evidence that bribes were actually paid, right? This isn't just speculation or thin evidentiary reads that these are being held on. I mean, oftentimes companies and individuals are being charged based on bribes that were paid by third-party intermediaries. So DOJ and SEC have to have a high level of confidence that they could prove the bribes were actually paid. So, you know, in light of that, obviously the benefits of naming bribe payers would be tremendous. It would give companies who are trying to act in good faith, who are trying very hard and investing tremendous resources in avoiding bad actor intermediaries. And in my experience, that's most companies. They don't want to hire these bad apples. Naming them would give the companies the ability to avoid engaging them inadvertently. And obviously, my view is sometimes these things don't pop up just in the normal due diligence process. There's stuff I'm confident that SEC and DOJ know the names of intermediaries who have paid bribes who don't appear anywhere on a trace report or a steal report in terms of having an initial corruption. Again, I would say due process concerns are still present here, but maybe lower. I mean, these are typically not U.S. citizens. They're, they're non-U.S. companies, non-U.S. individuals. And we've argued that the regulators could easily set up a system that would include some due process protections, right? So you could give the companies and individuals who are on this list the opportunity to challenge the designation, to present evidence, to have a hearing from a neutral fact finder. I mean, there are precedents for this, right? The OFAC and BIS denied parties list, the World Bank list. These kinds of lists have been operational in other related areas for a long time. So that's a, sorry, the long response, but that's our thinking. I mean, we think this could do an enormous amount of good for companies and for the program as a whole to avoid bribe paying, which is really the goal of of it all, I think, right? Absolutely. I'd love to see something like that. It doesn't seem um, to be in the immediate offing, but certainly it would be, I think it would really 
streamline things for companies who are having to enter into these necessary evil relationships, sales agents and distributors in, in some far-flung parts of the world where corruption is endemic. And it would be useful information to know that they've been a party to prior FCPA enforcement matters. That would uh, certainly be an important variable to consider. Well, speaking of which, often one FCPA investigation begets another, or even an examination of an entire industry. And that's been the case with a lot of examples, such as Petrobras, Siemens, which was sort of the wellspring for several industry-wide initiatives that followed, Panalpina, Una Oil, Oil for Food, which was an early example of one that begat a number of other prosecutions. In some of those cases, the common link is the bribe-paying intermediaries. Had there been a practice to expose and perhaps even bar bribe-paying intermediaries, could it have warned off some companies that got caught in industry-wide sweeps, such as the ones we just mentioned? I think so. Part of the challenge with this is you don't know because they don't tell you. So it's hard to answer that question with certainty. But I think there are certainly particularly parts of the world and certain industries where the number of available intermediaries who can do certain things that are required are very limited. And it would surprise me if there wasn't overlap, to be honest with you. From personal experience, I know of at least one intermediary that was referred to anonymously in resolution papers that I'm certain is being used by reputable compliance-oriented companies that their activity that the regulators know about that they didn't publish is just not known. And so there are you know innocent companies trying to do their best that are using that intermediary, and it just feels unfair. It's almost a game of gotcha that just seems unnecessary and unfair to me. So one of the things that when global companies start to really look introspectively at the universe of their third-party relationships, you know, kind of assign risk levels. And one of the things that seems to bedevil them, and we've both experienced this firsthand, is the nomenclature that is in use inside those organizations. Because even inside a single company, they may not use the same term to describe the same type of company from one part of the business to the next. From one region to the next, the company may have grown through acquisitions, so the the labels haven't in any way been harmonized. And I remember having some lively debates with some clients on certain categories of third party that the company maybe wanted to exclude from the anti-corruption program, such as with due apologies, law firms, resellers, distributors. So let's talk about distributors for a minute, because that's one that companies wrestle with a little bit. They typically buy goods at a discount and then resell them, which is a bit of a reverse polarity of the typical third-party relationship. Where's the potential corruption risk on that type of arrangement? And are all distributors created equal? It's a great question. You know, I agree with you. Like my, particularly my manufacturing clients really struggle with this issue and it's hard. I mean, the corruption risk of a distributor is that they're going to be acting on the manufacturer's behalf and pay a bribe to facilitate a sale to a government entity or a state-owned enterprise, or they pay a bribe to customs officials to get the company's products into the country. And if they're doing that with the knowledge of the company, there's FCPA liability there, right? I mean, that's a pretty standard scenario. But I don't think all distributors are created equal. I think the label is a problem. I have been fighting this fight myself for a while in terms of letting the label 
drive the procedures rather than really thinking about what is the entity doing for you and where, which are really the key questions. So like with distributors, I think it's very important to go back to the sort of the core principle of the FCPA, which is a company can be liable for the acts of a third party if that third party is acting on their behalf, right? If they're not acting on their behalf, if they're not an agent of that entity, liability shouldn't attach to the manufacturer. So you know, again, when I think about distributors, I think about how are they in fact acting on the company's behalf? Are they an agent? And there's a lot of criteria that we advise our clients to look at in terms of making that assessment. Are they exclusive, right? Do they represent themselves as an authorized distributor? Are they selling competing products? How much of their business is related to the manufacturer's products as opposed to like a general contractor where they might sell all kinds of different things? and that their sales involve packaging together products from different manufacturers that they represent and selling it. To me, it's smart to go through really an agency type analysis with distributors or dealers or whatever a company calls them and really look at what are they doing and could they reasonably be sort of viewed as acting as us? Or are they just more like a customer where we sell them stuff and then they do with it what they do? I don't ever advocate removing these any class of intermediary from the anti-corruption program altogether, but it's all supposed to be risk-based, right? And I know Dan Kahn at DOJ just did a, an interview at the SECE conference recently and, and made this point again, which we've heard from DOJ over and over, is that we really want you to think about where your risks are and design your procedures and invest your compliance money in the areas where you have real risk. So to me, it, it's thinking about distributors, what they're doing for you, are they acting for you? Of course, where are they acting, right, determines the level of corruption risk, and then design your procedures accordingly. That's the way I think about it. That's really helpful. You know, and I'd add to that, who are they acting with, right? Because uh, sometimes there's some really disconcerting iterations of third party where you look at the resume of the sole practitioner sales agent and until recently worked for the state-owned company that their sole function is to sell to that state-owned company. Inherently, that should make the hair on everyone's neck stand straight up. Even that relationship, it's not a no-brainer to disengage because you know, you want people who are in a position to do business, but do it in the right way. So there's some out there that, that really bear close scrutiny. So I remember uh, a CCO who I remain very good friends with, and he and I were not on the same page in terms of resellers, though. You know, his position was that they're nothing more than customers, whereas kind of the argument you used a moment ago, it depends, right? Are they even correctly labeled as a reseller? Are they doing other things? So is there validity to the argument that a, a reseller is nothing more than a customer? I think it's a mistake to let the label drive the analysis, right? I mean, a reseller could mean a lot of different things. I think about like in the software industry where an authorized reseller is like a Microsoft resellers are sort of Microsoft. They present as Microsoft, right? So that doesn't answer the question, right? I will agree with your client and you can give them my card and have them uh, talk to me if you like, but I will agree that, you know, there are scenarios where I could see a reseller looking like a customer and not an intermediary. I think about like, and I know this is an oversimplification, but in a sense, if you make widgets, Home Depot might be a reseller, right? You sell the Home Depot and they resell the others. Your widget is one of 20,000 SKUs in their store and, you know, they buy into inventory and they sell out of inventory and they're not acting on your behalf in any particular contract of theirs or in any particular regulatory action. 
I mean, I would say, yeah, that looks more like a customer than an intermediary. But I think resellers could fit into either category, depending on what they're doing for you and how they're approaching it and where they're doing it and who they're doing it with, as you said. That's the key to me. Well, and you made this point now a couple of times that you know you just can't unilaterally exclude a category of third party because you know you need more of a nuanced understanding at a more granular level is what does this specific third party do for us in practice? What volume of business? Where are they doing that business and with whom? Because that at the end of the day, there's going to be a variation of risk from benign to malignant, you know, in every category. It's a function of how closely have you examined the individual relationships. So much of the confusion around high-risk third parties, at least in part, stems from a lack of understanding of, of some of the fundamental concepts underlying the FCPA. And I, and I use the term the FCPA. I'm really talking about all the different anti-corruption frameworks that are in use across the globe. That is no longer the exclusive purview of the Department of Justice and the SEC. Those concepts include the term foreign official and instrumentality of a foreign government. If you don't really fully understand those two terms in particular, it stands to reason that you're not very well equipped to differentiate between the different categories of third-party risk that may exist in your ecosystem. So what are some strategies for companies to inventory their government touch points and then stratify the risks for each? You probably have had the same experience, Scott. Like when I first started doing this work, I would talk to my clients and say, well, just give me your list of all your intermediaries who interact with governments. And they'd look at me like I was crazy, right? Friends at the SEC might take issue with this, but it's not as easy as you think. Most companies don't keep track of information that way. I mean, it's hard, but it's an important part of the process to really, I mean, this sort of falls, I think, generally within the risk assessment function within compliance, right? It's important to probe and to ask the right questions and to ask the right people. And I'm not sure there's really any good substitute for going out and talking to people in the various operations in the various parts of the world and asking questions. How do you get goods in and out of the country? Who interacts with the government on permits and licenses and and approvals? Who are your government customers that you sell directly to? You kind of have to have those conversations. Now, some companies use surveys and questionnaires to pretty good effect. I think at the end of the day, sitting down and talking to people is really important in terms of being able to really develop that list and understand those risks. Another aspect to this, another way to sort of verify is checking against, you know, your vendor master list, right? You look at a trained auditor or lawyer in this space can look at the list of of vendors that the company uses and pick out the ones that look like they might interact in a way that presents risk. So I think it's a pretty painstaking process to do it right, but it's so important because again, you know, what we were saying before about tailoring your procedures to the risk, you can't tailor to a risk that you don't understand. So you have to invest the time to really get it. You touched upon a couple of areas of kind of government touch point that are often neglected. I think companies go to the obvious third parties that may pose risk, the sales agents and distributors, and those are part of, you know, sort of customer acquisition. Because that's where the largest potential risk is, you know, and you've got incentive compensation, commission, and things like success fees in play. But there's a whole lot of other touch points that may, the dollar amounts may not be as great, but the risk is still pretty significant. Even some like obscure stuff people just don't necessarily think about, like interacting with tax authorities and 
environmental right. oversight or a government's equivalent of OSHA, you know, just occupational safety inspectors. There's a whole laundry list, you know, local government, state government, and national government, their authority over a company. And, you know, and if there's corruption within those agencies, then you need to know the universe of who you're interacting with. It's a great point. And I actually just had this experience recently with a client. You know, we were talking to their local country management and, you know, sort of asked that broad question of, okay, what, you know, where are your government touch points? They're like, yeah, we don't really have any. You know, we don't sell the government and we don't really, you know, we just run our factory, right? And then as a sort of experienced practitioner in this, you start asking the kinds of questions you just asked, like, okay, what about, what about labor and employment? What about the OSHA type stuff? What about environment? And then by the time we were done with that conversation, we had identified seven or eight government touch points that were originally not flagged by the country manager. So again, back to that point of like, hopefully post pandemic, we'll be back to a, a world where we can actually send out compliance people to talk to people and ask good questions and, and really assess the risk. Yeah, there, I couldn't agree with you more. There's no substitute for just speaking to people. Because again, I think the other thing is it's a two-way conversation because the questions that you're posing, you're, you're actually raising the awareness you know, of the person that you're interacting with. You know, you're maybe walking through a process and sort of identifying the, the points of intersection in that process. And then you ask a follow-up question and then you, know, you see the awareness I think, you know, you and I probably both heard people at anti-corruption conferences, particularly when the speaker maybe wants to be provocative, where they advocated for things such as companies should completely eliminate certain categories of, of third parties, such as sales agents or dealers. Is that a viable option or is that just kind of hiding the ball? It may be viable for some companies. It, it can't be just a, a real solution to the problem. You know, like sales agents and commission-based sales agents tend to get a lot more scrutiny, but I'm not sure the risk is really that different. You, you know, they could be paying a bribe out of a commission. A, a distributor could be paying a bribe out of their margin. Is it really different? And frankly, with sales agents, you might actually have more visibility than you do with your distributors because you might have a better sense of the commission as opposed to the margin. So Obviously, the more you can control as an organization, probably the lower your risk profile is, right? If you have the resources and the ability to go to market without third parties and you can really maintain compliance controls and procedures over that process, it's probably lower risk than using third parties. The reality is most companies don't have the resources to do that. And so I don't view it as a viable solution. You know, I would say one of the positive byproducts of going through these risk assessment exercises, most of the clients that I've been through this with find a whole bunch of third parties that they don't really need that are doing very little for them, but creating disproportionate risk. And so it's almost always a positive byproduct that the list shrinks as a result of going through this process. And therefore, I think that the, the risk profile shrinks. Having been through the process a number of times with different big companies, you know, I, it's a very useful exercise, not just for the, you know, strengthening your anti-bribery and corruption program, but also just dormant relationship, unfavorable terms that have been in place for years that nobody sought to revisit, a redundancy, you know, where you've got multiple third parties doing the same thing in the same place and the ability to then streamline things a little bit, you know, reduce the overall number of relationships. So yeah, there's a lot of benefits from looking inward at the third parties. So we've touched upon this a few times, but I don't think we spoke about it overtly yet. You know, things like sales commissions and success fees and contingency fees, particularly in the area of customer acquisition, can lead to perverse behavior if left unchecked. You know, it's important to motivate people, but there's got to be appropriate oversight. 
So how should companies implement sales incentives without amplifying their corruption risk in the process? I totally agree with you in terms of your risk assessment. I mean, it clearly is a main, one of the main areas of risk, especially in procurement related bribery. I completely agree with that. The more commission-based, the more incentive-based, the more the more risk there is. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it is a risk enhancer. I think it's one of the areas where your procedures and policies need to, you know, put some parameters around that, right? You need to understand what reasonable commissions are, what reasonable incentives are, what, you know, stacks up in the industry, what stacks up in the particular country, and put guide rails in place. I'm sure you see this, Scott, too. A lot of my clients will have, you know, thresholds if the business people can offer incentives or commissions within a certain range. And if it goes above that, it needs additional approvals, maybe compliance review. I think that's a good idea in high-risk jurisdictions to have something, you know, parameters like that to sort of make sure that the risk is managed. The other thing is, you know, from an auditing and monitoring perspective, I mean, that's clearly something, I and mean, this is more the kind of stuff you do and, and FTI does, but, you know, when you're doing testing and auditing and monitoring of compliance procedures, it's obviously something you're going to want to look at, right, is try to find those, those outlier commissions, those outlier incentives, and make sure there was nothing inappropriate connected with them, particularly on higher risk transactions. Well, that's an excellent segue for my next question, David. So... When it comes to auditing, what are some red flags companies should be on the alert for, particularly when it comes to third parties? There are some obvious ones, right? I mean, that I think everybody probably listening knows about it. When it's um, corruption flags, reputation for fraud, bribery, abuse pops up, close ties to governments, things like that, that I think everybody knows sort of are red flags for third party intermediaries. Our Foley team, actually, we keep a running list of these because, you know, whenever we see something new, we... Um, we add it to our list. You know, some of the ones we've flagged that maybe aren't as obvious, you know, an unexplained breakup, right? Like if you find an intermediary that you have reason to know that somebody else terminated the relationship abruptly and maybe 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 a little too quietly, that's a red flag that we see. Opacity around ownership, you know, understanding who really are the beneficial owners of the company is, uh, as you know, a big challenge, but also a red flag. I, I think a lot of us look at, you know, is it look for indicia that this is a legitimate company that's not just being used as a front to make improper payments. So, you know, are they a mailbox in a building with 20,000 other mailboxes in Hong Kong, or they have a building with a parking lot and a business that you can observe? You know, stuff like that is important. One thing that we see a fair amount that always raises red flags for us is using subcontractors. Anytime you have a third-party intermediary, and they're, you know, look, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, they're up to no good, but it's a red flag if they're using other third parties, especially if they don't want to give you insight into their sub-distributors or their subcontractors. Some of the stuff around payment and compensation, obviously, you know, cash is a massive red flag. We see this, you probably see it more than I do, but over-invoicing, invoicing, you know, some crediting that has some plausible explanation, but also could be a way of creating a slush fund to pay bribes. That's concerning. Anything that's 
complex or arcane in terms of the payment mechanism is something that raises red flags for us. And then I guess the last thing is just documenting their invoices and the support for what they're doing for you. That's more of a, an auditing and monitoring aspect to this. But if you're finding your third parties are not providing backup documentation for expenses or for aspects of the work they're doing for you, that's a red flag. Uh, we actually have found that it's a nice sort of light way to deal with some third-party intermediaries rather than like a full audit. Just deny an invoice payment at some point and say, look, we don't have enough backup here. We're not paying you. Give us some more. And you learn some interesting things about them when you have to go through that exercise. I would argue that for a third-party program to have any teeth, it has to be fully integrated with the finance function. There needs to be the ability to step on the throat of the vendor until they acquiesce to request for information that is needed for the third-party program. Because absent that, there's just too much ability for people to bypass the program entirely. But if you're using the finance function and accounts payable as the lever, it's a powerful motivator. It's real. We on the lawyer side of this business tend to overlook the importance of the internal controls, the financial controls, and I think it's critical. And actually, you know, I mentioned this Dan Khan interview that I sort of happened recently, and I think that was a piece he emphasized as well as the importance of the internal accounting controls to make sure that their policies are actually enforced and uh, effectuated is super important, I think. I was listening to him on a webinar this morning. So you you reminded me of something when you're talking about the opacity of certain third parties. It reminded me of a kind of early days of I was kind of helping administer this big company's overall third party anti-corruption program and we completed questionnaires. And then we use the questionnaires to perform various levels of investigative due diligence based on you know, certain criteria. Everything about China is always mystifying to me. And so this was a an entity in China. And the three people that they had identified as being the directors of this company had no obvious nexus to the industry or the company and a big proponent of them just going back and asking and saying, you know, who are these people? Because we're not seeing what we're expecting to see. And the guy who filled out the questionnaire very matter of factly said, oh yeah, that, that's my neighbor. I went to primary school with this person and this is my brother-in-law. They have nothing to do with the operation of this business. I am the 100% owner, and he appeared nowhere on the application. So we modified our form to include information about the person completing the form. Because the premise being the person that is most knowledgeable isn't necessarily on the company. But what was really also interesting, it was very much a China-specific dynamic. We weren't the people he was trying to keep this from. It was the Chinese state that he was trying to keep in the dark. It was just a very kind of a enlightening interaction with this guy. So, so most companies have some type of third-party vetting process, which should at least result in the exiting of potentially problematic relationships. In fact, I would argue you need to be able to demonstrate that periodically you make those difficult decisions. Otherwise, what are you doing all this for if you're not going to disengage from anybody? To that end, how important is it to maintain a blacklist of previous debarred third parties and, and how would that work in practice? You're going to change the title of this to substance over form because that's the theme I keep returning to. But to me, that's a form over substance problem. And I've seen this, right, where we've both seen this, where the company that had the biggest, most recent FCPA problem probably has the best compliance procedures of anybody in the world, right? Because they're under a monitorship or they've completely reformed their compliance department and have completely different people. And to me, I've seen this pop up a number of times where 
you know, oh, it was Odebrecht or whatever. They have a new name now. And therefore, we can't do business with them, you know, forever until the end of time. And I always think you could do that. You're not going to get into FCPA trouble by refusing to do business with some blacklisted company based on something that happened in the past, but it's probably not rational. You're probably not actually addressing real risk. I mean, you should ask questions. Sure. I would think anytime you're dealing with an entity that had an FCPA resolution or some problem, you should ask questions about it. But to say, I mean, we're never doing business with Siemens ever again. I mean, that just seems commercially silly. No, that's a really good point. And I think the way some companies have chosen to deal with that, and I have advocated for them to do it this way, is you know, so the inverse of the blacklist is, is the whitelist, right? The complex global multi-touchpoint relationships that you have with companies like a Siemens, you know, like a Federal Express or, or your accounting firm or you know, global law firm to, first of all, to keep from just clogging up the works of having to continue to onboard them in each geography and look at them more holistically. The company has made this global decision to enter into this relationship. And yeah, you should hold them to some standard of care, but not every time you re-engage them. FTI would be a good example or, you know, a big four accounting firm. I don't think you can completely ignore the risk, but I think it's totally appropriate to approach that on a global basis and to get There are ways to get comfort that you can rely on that firm in different jurisdictions and not go through the process every single time. I totally agree with that. So leading industry practices suggest, and I've seen this work very effectively, designating a business sponsor. You don't necessarily need to use that exact terminology, but you know, designate a person who's responsible for each intermediary or at least those that the company has designated that are above a certain risk threshold that's been established. And what have you seen that makes the business sponsor role so important to the overall success of a anti-corruption program? I mean, I agree with you. I think it is important. And I think the reason it's important is that the red flags usually come up more often than not come up during the ongoing course of the relationship as opposed to during the onboarding piece where compliance is really focused on that intermediary. So it's stuff that happens as part of the ongoing business relationship where, you know, all of a sudden they ask for an unusual form of payment or there's some excessive commission or payment or discount in the distributor context to ask for. You need somebody who's involved day to day with that third-party intermediary to spot those red flags, right? There's just no opportunity for compliance to get insight into that because however regularly they're onboarding or updating the onboarding, they're not seeing it day-to-day. So I think the business sponsor is clearly your first line of defense, your spotter of red flags, the person who is best positioned to keep you out of trouble with a third-party intermediary. I agree. I I also think that person sort of represents two very important roles. Number one, they're the throat to choke. And number two, they become kind of your ambassador because it's not this faceless, gigantic corporate headquarters, um, you know, 10,000 miles away from where the action is. But locally, there's a point of contact that could explain in plain English what the issue is because a lot of red flags and a lot of findings and due diligence and stuff can be explained and they need to be explained. And you need to get then to the point where you can you get past this or not. And that's another really, I think, important role for that business sponsor to engage directly. You know, companies expend huge sums of money investigating these third parties, but, you know, sometimes there's like open issues that can't get resolved in the, you know, the normal arm's length investigative 
process, you got to just ask to back it up with something that corroborates what they're saying. There's sometimes, well, not lately, no substitute for physically inspecting a location, certain categories of high-risk third party. And why is this important? At some level, you know, we talked about this before about the mailboxes in Hong Kong, right? The lack of a real business, the lack of a real location, you learn things from actually seeing it, from seeing the people, from being on site. That's just super high quality information that will help you make better decisions about dealing with that intermediary. I mean, it's not always realistic and it's not, it's also not like always all that revealing. You know, I, I had a client that had a distributor that was a raft on the Amazon River. And it was the only way they could service smaller communities along the river, but that was their location. And if you had just inspected it, you might've thought, hmm, this seems you know, shady. But to your point, once you understand the business model and what's going on, it made a lot of sense. So, I mean, look, it's a valuable thing to see and be physically on site. And as you know, actual audits of third-party intermediaries is becoming a best practice. That's a, maybe a whole nother podcast is how to do that effectively. It's a challenge, I know. But, you know, being able to get there and see them and observe people and observe body language and understand you know, how the business really works is just super valuable. It reminds me also kind of similar to what I was talking about before, that, that questionnaire that you pose. It's important to ask a question two ways, which is where are you legally registered and where are you operating from? Because often those two addresses are different mm. and you can waste a lot of resources sending people out to the address where the company's legally registered. You know, it's a post office box. It's someone's home. And then immediately the red flags go up and sometimes unnecessarily because you didn't ask the right the question. question. Right. Right. So, you know, and you send, you just kind of somewhat mindlessly send somebody out and I'm guilty of this myself. You know, we send people out to the registered address and they're like, the warehouse is five miles down the road and there's, there's a fleet of 50 vehicles sitting in a, an industrial park. And um, so you do have to ask, you know, the question in a little bit more layered way, which is, where are you operating from? What is your primary location? Uh, what are some of your you know, satellite locations? Because it's, and it's, again, it's all part of that kind of ongoing dialogue through your business sponsor and directly. So, well, David, this is, this has been a terrific conversation. Really enjoyed it and um, really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. I, I enjoyed it too. I uh, appreciate the invitation and I'll look forward to the TikTok. <laughs> so that was David Simon of Foley and Lardner. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director and FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest you'd like to hear about in a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>